Thank you, Colin. Thank you, team. Thank you, Joshua. Everyone who's partaken, Bethany and Garrick, sharing your testimonies. Um, this is a full gospel Sunday. We pray that every Sunday. But I don't know about you, I just felt like those themes were just resonating freshly uh, this morning. And I was fun even looking out and watching you sing. And, uh, and just a little bit of that Ephesians 5 singing and mel making melody in our heart to one another as we sing praises to our God. Well, if you would, let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 13. We're going to conclude this chapter. We're going to be in verses 8 through 14 this morning. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, we'll have the words up on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord from Romans 13. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This text this morning not only has biblical significance for us, which I hope to unpack, but there's, there's also a, a historical significance that I want to draw to your attention. It was this passage that the Lord used to save Augustine of Hippo to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. You might be saying, well, who's, who's that? You might better know him as Saint Augustine. Augustine was a 5th century Christian theologian and one of the most important figures in the history of the church. His writings are responsible for shaping much of Western Christianity and philosophy. Probably his most well-known uh, works are The City of God on Christian Doctrine and The Confessions. Confessions uh, is basically an autobiography uh, looking back and explaining his life uh, having now come to know Christ. And, and we read in that biography that he grew up um, with one Christian parent, his mother. And his uh, mother prayed for him fervently all the days of his life. But in his adolescence, he, he gave himself to the pursuit of human wisdom and human pleasure to the fullest extent. He he lived a very loose life and a very prideful life. He was very brilliant, as the church has benefited from. But in his sinfulness, he, his knowledge puffed up and his pleasures were not exhausted. Unable to find satisfaction, though, in the world, he began to attend church, where he once again heard the scriptures taught. In fact, his reason for going back to church wasn't just because he was uh, not finding satisfaction. He 
And he had heard of the great Ambrose preaching, and he wanted to see and maybe learn from new wisdom and even hear how his presentation skills, he might adopt them for himself to be more persuasive. However, in that maybe sinful endeavor, he began to find himself hearing the word of God preached. However, Augustine was not converted until one day he picked up a Bible. and He read two verses that we read here in Romans 13. In fact, he was outside, and he was weeping bitterly out by a tree, weeping over his sins. He was beginning to feel the guilt of his loose living. And while he was weeping, he heard the voice of a child singing. The child was singing, and, and the song that was being sung had these words as, as, as its lyrics. Pick up and read. Pick it up and read it. Pick up and read. Pick it up and read it might be saying, I've never heard that song before. Well, neither had Augustine. He thought, that's an odd song. I've never heard a child sing that song. And so he supposed it must have been nothing else than the command of God for him to open up the Bible, to read it. And so he determined that he was going to get a Bible, and wherever he opened it up, he was going to read. And he went and found a friend of his who had all their wisdom literature. He had all the philosophers, and, and they had the Bible, if you want to put it that way, in the list of their books. He said, I, I, need, I need a Bible. Well, it didn't have like what we have exactly. He gave them a volume of Paul's letters. And he opened up where he first could, and, and this is where his eyes landed. Not in orgies and in drunkenness. Not in sexual morality and sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. His confessions, as he reflected on this moment, he, he writes, No further would I read, nor needed I. For instantly at the end of this sentence, by a light, as it were, of sincerity uh, infused into my heart, and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. I don't know about you, but that encourages me. We've just heard testimonies, and, uh, and the same work of grace is being done today that was being done in the first, fifth century. And the same word that was saving the wayward Augustine is saving people today and has saved you and me, and is why we're here this morning, right? It's my prayer that as we dive into this text, not just verse 13 and 14, but 8 through 14, it's my prayer that we too would have hearts ready to receive the powerful word of God that transforms lives to be fit for his purposes. Brothers and sisters, this transformation that takes place of the new birth, which we heard from both Bethany and Garrick, where the word of Christ pours into us and makes us new creatures, this occurs when one trusts the love of Christ which has been put on display through his death, burial, and resurrection. This is the good news that sinners can be forgiven. Maybe you're here today and you, like Augustine, are, are bearing the weight of guilt for the sin that you know you are living in. I want you to know there is good news this morning. Good news that your sins may be washed clean. So it's my prayer we would receive this good news as we study. And for those of us who have received the love of Christ through faith, we're going to be called to live that out, to live it out toward one another. And so with this in mind, Paul's words in Romans 
13, 8 through 14, call us to action. Call us to put on some new clothing, if you will, to, to put on the love of Christ. To take off the old man, the old clothes, and put on robes of bright light. In fact, he'll even call it later the armor of light. So as we're called to clothe ourselves with the love of Christ, we'll not only show ourselves to truly be his disciples, those who are at the wedding feast with the proper garments on, if you recall that parable, but we'll a lot wisely live in light of his coming. And so to this end, we only have really two commands in this text. I know there's a lot of verses, but really just two exhortations. And the, and the first is to put on love. The second is to put on Christ. They really are the same thing, but we're going to see them from two different angles. So the first of these commands is to put on love, and we see that in verses 8 through 10. Paul's transitioning from where we were last week. You can look in verse 7 where he says, pay to all what is owed to them. And, and he was talking about taxes and honor to governing officials. Well, here kind of as a play on words and transitioning from paying proper tribute to the governing authorities, Paul now calls us to be debtors of love toward one another. He says, oh, no one anything except to love each other. Now here he's not talking about not taking out a loan, just so you know. Some Christians have viewed that verse and said, well, that means we should never, ever under any circumstances borrow money. Well, there's certainly wisdom to be involved as you think about those things. There's good debt, bad debt. Maybe take the biblical stewardship class and you might learn some of those things, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's, he's doing, he's saying, don't be, you need to not be indebted to anyone except you do have this one debt, that is love. Because you have been shown such a great love, have you not? Our sins, they are many. But what? What did the lyrics say? Say it. His mercy is more. Oh, that should come through in every interaction we have with one another. My sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Therefore, I'm, I'm a debtor of love. And so that's what he calls us to, to, to be debtors of love toward one another. And in other words, we're to pay to others what is their due, and that is the payment of love. However, contrary to the popular conception of love, which dominates our culture, let me borrow from the wise words of Boston, it's more than a feeling, okay? Biblical love is action. In fact, as we're going to see here, it obeys commands. It, it fulfills the law. It's not just to say, I, I love you. It's to be demonstrated in some way. Love is a verb. That doesn't mean there are never feelings that come apart with that, but you can love someone even if you don't have the feelings. And you can have feelings and not really love. And we're going to see the true essence of love in this uh, as Paul calls us to love in such a way that fulfills the law. You, you see this idea three times in, in these verses. In 8, 9, and 10, he, he keeps repeating it in different ways. He says in verse 8, For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now just stop there and think about that. Think about the Old Testament law. If you're, if you're a Christian or you've been taught these things, think about primarily the Ten Commandments. Think about all the laws in the Old Testament. 
They're given to Moses. There's, there's a lot there. And he says, if you love people, you, you, you will have fulfilled it. You would have kept the law. That's pretty remarkable. Because when I think about the commands of the law, I fail utterly. But yet, there's this supernatural love. As, as Paul says in Romans 5, 5, the love of God has been poured into our hearts. That love enables us to love one another. And if we do that, there's a principle that we are keeping, and that is the underpinnings of the law. He goes on, verse 9, and he, he lists several commandments. We'll look at some of these here in a moment. But he says that all the commandments in verse 9 are summed up in this command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting from Leviticus. Then verse 10 concludes, love is fulfilling of the law. What does that mean? What does that really mean? Well, it means that the, the principle of the entire Old Testament law is sacrificial love. That's the principle. And when sacrificial love is practiced, the moral components of the law will be kept. Now, there are other elements of the law, such as the clothes you wear, don't have different types of threading, or, or how you, you plant your garden, or what food you eat. Those things have not come over in what we call the law of Christ. And that's really complicated and more than I can get into. But just the moral elements which reflect the full character of God are fulfilled in love. In fact, even those weird laws in the Old Testament like don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. I don't know about you. I've never been tempted that way. We're all breaking, having two different type of threading in our clothing, but all those things can actually be lumped into the two great commandments, love God and love neighbor. God was saying, I want you to be a people set apart holy and distinct, and I have rules that are going to make you different from everybody else. What was the principle? Love God. If you love God, those won't be a problem. And the other side of the law, think of the latter half of the Ten Commandments, which we're going to see here, well, that was to love your neighbor. There were rules about having a fence on top of your roof because that was where your deck was. Why would you want to do that? Because you loved your neighbor and you didn't want him stand on your roof and fall off and die. And so what we're seeing here is love is the undergirding current that upholds the law. And so we see this really expressed as we start looking at these commandments. And, and he lists the these commandments, and he starts with, you shall not commit adultery. Now, adultery is just one expression of sexual sin, which our, our, our culture repackages as just following your heart, right? We don't call it adultery. We say they were just following their heart. Well, our passage calls following your heart making provision for the flesh. That's what it's saying. So we want to truly love. We want to be a people who are truly marked by enduring love. But adultery is the opposite of love, Paul says. And we're going to see this in the, the commandments. It's doing, as he says, wrong to your neighbor. Well, who's your neighbor in this case? Your spouse. It destroys your family. If you have kids in that, that family. It destroys another person's family, does it not? It's not love, it's full-blown selfishness. 
It's the rise of pride and making provision of your flesh. It's, it's following your heart. That's what it leads to, destruction. Why? Because the heart is desperately sick. But when the new heart is given, it has the love of Christ. Well, that's unthinkable. Even though I'm sure we are tempted in many ways. Biblical love does that which is in another person's best interest. Adultery is not another person's best interest. It's your best interest, at least in the facade of the fantasy you have created. But if you've read the scriptures, in particular Proverbs, it's actually not your best interest either. You're not living in the fear of the Lord, and it will lead you down to a pit of destruction, which can either be you'll be murdered or killed or die in this life, but there's a far greater death that you need to be concerned about. Fear him who can b throw both body and soul into hell, Jesus says. And so, if you're truly loving, how is lying to your spouse and taking another's, the interest, anyone's interest but your own selfishness? Gratifying the desires of the flesh, Paul says. But the love of Christ is self-sacrificing, we're going to see. And it treats others as you would want to be treated. Would you want to be lied to? Would you want to be abandoned and betrayed? Well, that's what you're doing when you entertain sexual sin. In any of its forms. And biblical love... Self-sacrificing love begins by fighting the battle of lust in the heart. Because that's where it begins, isn't it? You begin to let those desires fill your mind. And if you give in to the fantasy, don't be fooled. Sin will not stop there. So many people think that they can control their sin. I'll just keep it here, and it won't hurt anybody. I'll just entertain it. Whatever it's formed. You're a fool. We're a fool when we do that. Because out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. It'll eventually come out. You won't be able to contain it. It'll move to other expressions. And You think you can contain the fantasy in your mind, which is actually coveting and idolatry of longing for another person than the one that God has given you, or longing for a person outside of the proper relationship of marriage, if you're a teenager, or you're not married to someone right now. You don't get off the hook just because it says adultery here. Even though you may play the fantasy in your mind, it will not stop there. It will move to other expressions. It will move into pornography and other sorts of, of expressions. And then you'll begin to find new outlets. That's how sin works. You cannot play with fire and not get burned. I don't know if you've kept up with the saga of high-profile pastors shipwrecking their faith, family, and churches due to their sexual infidelity. But sadly, it's seeming to become commonplace. And every single one of these that I've heard about, even on a, a personal level, if I, I've known brothers who have fallen into this sin, and just as a side note, pray for us, your pastors. I mean it. Pray for us. This, the, the evil one is going to seek a foothold here. If we're doing 
what we're singing about here, the evil one's going to oppose it, and he's going to look at any way he can get in to destroy what's going on here. He's going to take out the leaders first, at least attempt to. That doesn't mean he won't go after you. And, and his schemes are, are many, and we're going to see this. That's why we're going to need to be make no provision for the flesh, no, make no plans for it. We need to be making plans. That's defensive plans. But pray for us. This is many a casualty have occurred in these areas. But anyway, things that I've heard or the ones that I've known, every one of these men have thought they could keep it under wraps. I got this under control. They, they lived in an illusion. Maybe they were able to pull it off for a season. Some of these have been going on in a short period, weeks. Some of them have been going on for decades. But one day, they were found out. I've heard of one pastor who left his iPad, cell phone, went to go greet people, and the person he was having an affair with in the church texted him, and someone came to get his, his, uh, his device, and it was right there. They didn't catch that one. They forgot about that covering. You may think, man, that's harsh. No, that's God's grace to bring it out. So it just takes one text message to the wrong person, your email left open, a witness not foreseen, a party unwilling to keep quiet, and your secret will be out. And those are really the, the lesser of the consequences. But when that secret comes out, that secret life, no matter where you are, it's like a boulder smashing into a body of water, and it splashes and the ripples are ongoing. It affects everybody not just your decision. It was, but it will affect everyone. Maybe you're sitting here this morning thinking, well, I won't be caught. I'm not that stupid. Well, if you're doing it, you're that stupid. And I say that with love, even though as I preach a sermon on love, you know. <laughs> Perhaps you can take your spouse as a fool. Perhaps you can take your friends and your church as a fool, but you will not take God for a fool. Do you think you'll escape him who has eyes like fire? Who can penetrate the heart and reveals the secrets of men? If you do, you're basically an atheist. If you think that you can fool him, if you think that he does not see, if you think he will not uncover, you are functionally an atheist and you will be judged as one. Joshua read from Ephesians where more of this is, is drawn out. For on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Now, you might be living like that. Well, stop telling everybody you're a Christian. Because we'll know on that day. As the writer of Proverbs said, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. It's a great principle great good news. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, man, I'm not telling you guys anything. But there's good news if you do. For what we cover, God uncovers. But what we uncover through confessing of our sins to Him, 
God covers. He covers with the blood of his son. He makes you spotless. He makes you whole. And many of us, whether it was adultery of other sexual sins or other pursuits of sin in our lives, those of us who have come to know Christ, we, we know that to be sweet and true, right? He's covered us. And so I want to appeal to anyone here who thinks that, that they can keep their sin contained, no matter what you label it or which one it is. There's grace and mercy for those who agree with God and confess, I am sin a sinner. And then you can join in actually singing that song. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Love of neighbor here says, I will die to my sinful desires. That's what it is. I'll die to my sinful desires, and I will do so out of commitment to another, my spouse. But love also includes other people. You can see this in the rest of the list. If you love Christ, or you love as Christ has loved, you won't murder people. That one's pretty self-explanatory, right? You won't steal from others, and you won't covet. Covet's idolatry. That's longing for things that others have that you yourself don't. And, and that could be items, possessions, paycheck. But it could be other things such as title, recognition, their spouse, their kids, their opportunities. And that, that covetousness begins to build bitterness and hatred. And it shows itself up in many ways. Now, you might not be tempted to murder someone. I hope you're not. Maybe you are. But you, but you don't have to be tempted to physically put your hands around their throat to be guilty of this. Jesus says even if you are angry with your brother, have hatred in your, toward your brother in your heart, you, you're guilty of murder in God's eyes. He's the one who sees the heart before it even comes out. And so do you hate people in your heart? When they don't do what you want, do you boil up inside of yourself? Strangely, Christians can get furious with others, even in their walk with Christ, because they pridefully think that they're further along than others. This is why we're warned, knowledge puffs up, right? And it, can so, it so happens to all of us. We learn a little, we grow a little, and then oh, how quickly we forget the other people. And usually, we're, we're, we might have grown in one area, but we're not as maybe mature in all the areas that we think we are. Maybe it is we are mature in this area that we're looking down at somebody on, but maybe we're not so mature in the area that they are. And that's not loving. Do you look down on other Christians because they don't have it together like you? Whatever that means. Maybe you find yourself saying things like this. If only they took the Bible seriously like me, then they wouldn't do that. If only they served as much as I do, then they'd really be living for the Lord. If only they would educate or discipline their children like we do, well, then they wouldn't have those problems. You ever found yourself thinking or saying those things to your spouse, to those who are just like you and do it just like you, 
and you begin talking about those other people and it begins to maybe cause you to be angry towards them and bitter towards them and harsh towards them. You know what we're really saying when we do that? Everyone would have it together if they'd just be like me. That's called pride, brothers and sisters. And I think, no, I know, because I'm one of you, we, we do that far more than we'd like to admit, don't we? We do it far more. And that's where, the, you look at verse 13, quarreling jealousy. That's where that all comes out. That's where it comes. Now, some have tried with this command, love as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Some have tried in their sinful creativity to interpret this command from Leviticus 19.18 as a loophole for their own selfish purposes. This is where the, just the dimension of sin is just far deeper than we ever imagined. We can twist the scriptures to make them uh, ourselves. And so this is, I mean, I've literally heard people reason like this. Well, I wouldn't want to stay in this marriage, so I'll do them a favor. Loving them as I would want to be loved. Or, I don't care if someone takes advantage of me to get ahead. That's just how life is. So, you know what? Get over it. I'm going to do the same. I'm not going to be offended. And so, what, what are we doing? Well, we've redefined love as what we want, and then we've said, well, I'm going to love as I want to be loved. See the perversion there? And we do it. Maybe not in those extreme ways, but we do. I'm just loving as I would want to be loved. No, actually, you're just redefining all the terms so you can get what you want. But what we're going to see here is that you and I are not the ultimate standard of love. Christ is. And he's told us what is good, pleasing, and acceptable to him. And we find that in his word. We, we find what true love looks like. And the point of this command is to love others by seeking their best interest. Why? Because you seek your best interest, don't you? That's the point of the principle. It's not a loophole. It's you are always caring for yourself. Well, true biblical love flips that and says, I'm wanting to always care for you. This is how Christ has loved us, isn't it? Christ has liberated us from selfish instincts to love others by demonstrating that love for us on the cross and pouring that love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Now just think about this. He sacrificed his rights and privileges, glory and honor, humbling himself to serve those who do not deserve it. So you don't get to say, well... My spouse doesn't deserve it. My kids don't deserve it. That guy doesn't deserve it. That You've redefined love. Because you and I didn't deserve it. And so he sacrificed himself. And he loved us by taking upon him our burden. By taking our sin upon himself so that he may give his righteousness to us. That's why it's good news if you confess your sins, because that's the business that Jesus is in, taking sins and giving cleansing. You only go to the doctor when you're sick. You've got to tell him what's wrong. Have you told Christ, I'm broken? 
save me. And he loves to save sinners. In other words, Christ has loved us in such a way that we would be treated like he should have been treated, with glory and honor. And he did so by being treated as we should have been treated. That is accursed and given judgment. So to put on love is to sacrifice our rights and privileges and desires so that another may flourish. That's what this love is. It's radical, isn't it? It's beyond us. That's, that's beyond human love. But it's the love that's been poured into our hearts, Romans 5.5. 5. I'm going to keep beating that drum. And this is perfectly illustrated in the cross. And why? And, it, and it's why that Paul then calls us in the next verses to put on Christ. It's really bringing more definition to this love. That's where we're getting at. Put on love as Christ is loved, is what he's getting after. And that's what he means when he says, put on Christ. You, you can see that in verse 11. Besides this, and he goes on to give us some instruction. And in verses 11 through 13, he, he kind of sums up by saying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Really, Paul's not just summarizing these verses here. He's summarizing everything probably started with in Romans chapter 12 on. If you were with us just six weeks ago, we saw in Romans chapter 12, it began with a call not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're, we're learning that as we soak ourselves in the scriptures, we learn the love of Christ which transforms us. And here he says, put on Christ. What a, what a beautiful picture. Wrap yourself up in Christ. Put him on like a robe. Put them on, as he's going to say, like armor, so that you may withstand the schemes of the evil one. What does it practically look like to put on Christ? Well, well, first it is to believe the gospel, which says you already have put on Christ. Listen to Galatians 3.27. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If you're a Christian today, you've confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you have publicly uh, announced your, your, your following of Christ, the waters of baptism, you have put on Christ, he says. You're in Christ, as sometimes the language is. I've died to myself. I've been raised anew. Who am I, who am I a new creature in? I'm a new creature in Christ. That is who you are if you are a Christian. You're clothed with him. His righteousness covers your sin. And if you've trusted him as your Savior, and you've died to your sinful self, you've been made new, being wrapped up in the garments of Christ. This is Romans 6, if you wanted to go back. Romans 6 says you've died with Christ, you've been raised with him. And just as a side note, everything we're learning in Romans 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 is grounded in the theology that we learned in Romans 1 through 11. He's just now putting flesh on it. This is what it looks like. This is how it lives itself out. And so, yeah, you could be really rooted in theology, but if you're not living in 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, you actually haven't learned it yet. That's what we're 
for discovery. You must put it into action. And so there's a, a tension here. We, yeah, I've put on Christ, but yet I'm called to put on Christ. Do you see that here in our text? I, I have died to sin, now die to sin. That's the idea. And so the facts of our relationship with Christ are to serve as the, the basis for our commands. You heard it in Garrick's testimony. He said, at first I thought it was I keep the commands and I become more like Christ, but then I learned that it was a love for Christ that helped me keep the commands. Actually, I think I remember Miss Marie Dillman's testimony several months ago. She said, I, I thought going to Sunday school, going to church, reading my Bible was how you became a Christian. Now, I didn't realize it was you became a Christian, and then all those things came. Well, in the same way, this is what we're learning here. The love of Christ compels us. It motivates us. And so what we're seeing here is we are to live as who we truly are. Put on Christ because you have put on Christ. Second way that you put on Christ, first is to believe the gospel which says you put on Christ. Now the second, open your eyes, wake up. Some of you might need that right now. Wake up. Looking forward to our coming salvation. Look in verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. In Christ, we have been saved, past tense. We are being saved, present reality. And we will be saved. We see all those in Scripture. Well, that's the tension that's going on. And Paul's telling us, wake up, lift up your eyes, and look to your future salvation. Look to that day of Christ's return. And on that day, what, what will happen? Our faith, who we are, I believe the gospel that I've put on Christ. Well, guess what? My faith will be sight. I'll be raised from the dead. I'll have a body like his, and we'll see him for who he is because we will be what? Like him. And so we're looking forward to those realities coming to sight. And so, if you're a Christian, you've, you've been awakened from your stupor and slavery to sin. And that hour has come, yet you're still eagerly waiting, expecting His return. And you show that you're eagerly waiting by how you live now. That you truly believe those things. Your love for Christ shows itself in love for others. This is what Jesus tells the disciples in the garden before he was betrayed. Familiar with uh, the story in the garden, Gethsemane in Matthew 26? After the Passover, uh, Judas has left. Jesus goes and takes his disciples out into the garden. They go out where they've spent many times before. And Jesus says, wait here, I'm going to go over here and pray. And he begins to pray and he says, not my will be done, but your will be done. He's submitting himself to the will of the Father. Setting an example for us, by the way. And what happens when he comes back? Disciples are awake, right? They're alert. Let's go, Jesus. No. This is what we read, verse 40 and 41. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think Paul is reflecting on this, and this is what he's calling us to. There's like a, a, a multiple dimension of meaning that's happening here where Jesus has gone away, and we are to be watchful and alert in prayer. And when he comes back, will he find us sleeping? So Paul says, the hour has come. His hour has already come by which he has defeated the powers of darkness, of Satan, sin, and death. We're no longer to be asleep. We're, we're to live as children of the light, children of the day. That's what he's saying here. And the Holy Spirit has done that in your and my life. That darkness was defeated on the cross. And so verse 12 of our passage in verse chapter 13, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. If you know the light, then you walk in the light, right? You don't live in the darkness. And so that leads us to the third way of putting on Christ. We put off the works of darkness which once characterized us. So here, just by refresher, we believe the gospel, the message that Christ has died for us, that we've been cleansed. We look forward to the day in which our faith will be sight. And now we cast off the works of darkness. We are waiting. We see the sunlight breaking over the horizon. Darkness is passing. The day is coming. I'm living for the day. Or are you living for the night? If you're a believer, we're called now, in light of what Christ has done, in light of what's our future reality, we're to cast off the workness, works of darkness. Don't clothe yourselves in evil, but throw evil off and flee from it. But the reality is, so often we're tempted to ride the fence, aren't we? I'll somehow keep myself in the darkness as long as I can see that door over there still has light I guess I'm I know where to go when it goes down we're not supposed to live like that we're not called to keep an eye on the light we're called to stand in the light We're not only called to stand in the light but the reason we can stand is because we're clothed in Christ the armor of light so we cannot ride the fence, but as he calls us to, we must forsake the works of darkness. And he describes these for us. This is where Augustine was, was stirred up and, and called to faith in Christ. My prayer is that if you're here today and you're living in darkness, that you would awake from your stupor and you would put on Christ and you'd walk in the light and you would flourish and you'd grow to know him and love him and join a bunch of ragtag disciples of his who've walked and been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. He categorizes these in three groups, orgies and drunkenness. Ancient world's really not that much different than ours, is it? That's what we do for fun. When I say we, I'm talking about the world. If you don't believe me, just go to a co college campus. Everything's kicking off this week. Not at Boyce, though, right? That doesn't happen at Boyce. Just not in, as probably in the open. Go to adult social. Closely related is the sec second group, sexual immorality and sensuality. 
It was the works of darkness. It's just purely showing no restraint for one's pleasures. And then finally, quarreling and jealousy, which is actually leading us up to for chapters 14 and 15. All these things are described as works of darkness and are opposite of love. Now you might say, I don't do these things. Or I've never done these things. Or I don't do them anymore. Good. But are you entertained by watching others do them? Or listening about the works of darkness? Do you think you can live in it? You can soak yourself in and be renewed by the works of darkness? No. You must put on the armor of light. And so if you've died to sin, how can you live in it any longer? If we live in the light of Christ's coming, we don't want to be in the darkness because on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And on that day, God says he will judge the secrets of men through his son, Jesus Christ. So as we close here, and those of you who are going to lead us in song, you can come on up. Here's what I want to leave with us, brothers and sisters. I don't want us to be found clothed in darkness and exposed when he comes, but rather that we would be clothed in light and be intimately known by Christ. I want on that day we're looking forward to it. I don't want that day to be for any one of you, oh no, the gigs run up. I want it to be a day of hope, a day of joy, a day of great blessing. So I want to call us not to, not to just run from evil, but run from evil to Christ. Embrace him as he embraces you. And as you are consumed with Christ in his beauty and his love, as you put him on like a warm coat in a winter's day, and you are loving the warmth of his care for you, the things of this world, will grow strangely dim for you in the light of his glory and grace. And to that end, let's stand and let's sing.